welcome to Bullpen Sessions, where you will learn the lessons from the athletes excelling at the highest level so you can take these same lessons and apply them to your sport, business, and life. My name is Andy Neary, and each week I sit down with current and former pro athletes and other professionals tied to the sports world where we dive into the mindset of those athletes excelling at the highest level, teaching you lessons you can apply so you can have massive success in your sport, business, and life. So do me a favor, grab your glove, grab a ball, take the mound, because you are about to strike out those limiting beliefs that have been holding you back oh so long. Here we go. Hey, hey, welcome back to Bullpen Sessions. This is episode 118. Today, I'm excited to share with you uh, Patrick Godfrey. Patrick's got a really cool story that I wanted you to hear. Uh, I've got a chance to meet Patrick through a mutual acquaintance. And I wanted to talk to Patrick and have him on the Bullpen Sessions because he... Uh, definitely overachieved on the athletic field, but he's even equally more overachieving in the business world with the great work he's doing with an organization called uh, called About You Outreach. You see, Patrick grew up in Long Island, which in the sports world is known as a lacrosse hotbed. But growing up, Patrick was that typical multi-sport athlete, but he really excelled in football, excelled in lacrosse. But it was the football field that uh, he felt the most him. He felt the most energized, and it was football he wanted to pursue. Now, heading into his high school, uh, his senior season in high school, he didn't have many big-time Division One offers to play college football. In fact, schools like Bryant and Lafayette, Division One AA, or what's known as FCS schools, were the only schools that had come calling to uh, to want Patrick to to join their universities at the next level. But he was not satisfied. You see, he wanted to go higher. Not only did he want to go higher, he wanted to go to the best, which led him to applying academically to get into Clemson University, which he was approved. He was accepted. Then he said, you know what? I'm going to go try out for the football team. And amongst 100 athletes who were there, 100 football players who were there to try out for four spots, Patrick was one of four to make the team. And the rest is history. Three national title games later, two national title victories later, Patrick's four-year career at Clemson was massively successful. And this has led to him having equal success after his football career is over with his work with About You Outreach. His passion to help athletes in underserved areas like the boroughs of New York City, these football players who often go um, overlooked, have no exposure where the big universities don't come calling just because they don't take the time to come to New York to look at these kids. Patrick is doing something about it. Patrick is helping these athletes, these underserved athletes get the exposure they need so that they can get the opportunities they deserve. And I was so excited to share this with you. So if you've got a young athlete out there, you know, whether, whether they're playing high school or college sports, this is an awesome episode to share with them. Uh, Patrick's a shining example of what it means to, own your dream. He had a dream to play major, major college football, and he went and pursued it, and he got it. So grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, take a lot of notes. You're going to love Patrick's story. You're going to love the work he is doing to help underserved athletes today, and I'm just excited to bring them to you. All right, here we go. Shift your mindset. All right, welcome back to Bullpen Sessions. I'm really excited for this episode because um, – 
the gentleman I have here on today, I, I'm excited to share his story. It's a really cool story of, uh, let's call it a little adversity, overcoming the odds, having massive success in college sports. And then, um, as you, as you know, if you listen into the podcast, it's about what people are doing in chapter two of their life when the sports career is over. So with that being said, Patrick Godfrey, I am, uh, I'm excited to have you on today, man. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And, you know, I think uh, you guys will kind of see with my mission, I'm just hoping to get the word out there of how you can translate sports into success in, in other realms. That is what this podcast is about, my friend. Now, if somebody were to go look you up right now, especially on LinkedIn, they're going to see that you're a financial analyst at Wells Fargo. And and no offense, that's not the exciting story we're about to share here, right? <laughs> um, but take us back. Let's, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Long Island and um, – you know, it's so funny, Patrick, because I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts, read a lot of books, self-help, personal development, and a lot of, you know, interviews with highly successful people. And it shocks me the number of successful, and I'm talking like billionaire type success, people that come from New York City, Long Island. I don't know what's in the water over there, but we'll get to that in a second. But why don't we just start with your childhood, Patrick? Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you grew up, what kind of sports were you into when you were growing up on Long Island? Um, I really played everything when I was a little kid. Um, my dad has been a uh, high school football and lacrosse coach for pretty much my entire life. Um, so those were the, the two biggest passions early on. But I played everything from baseball to basketball to golf to tennis as well. Um, so I was, I was that kid playing sports at all times. Um, in terms of my family, um, I, I kind of had a, a dynamic childhood that I'm pretty grateful for because um, I had a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a teacher. So early on in our life, that kind of meant, you know, we're more of a, a lower middle class family. And, uh, you know, I never necessarily wanted for anything. But um, in my community, there's a lot of kids who had all the excesses of life. And that, you know, certainly wasn't my family. We we're raised to, you know, earn everything that we ever got. And then, you know, over time, slowly you know things got better my mom eventually went back to work so i got to kind of i guess see both sides of the eco the socioeconomic spectrum as a kid which is something that uh, i become really grateful for later on in life but yeah i was that i was that kid always who was just setting ambitious goals always overloading his plate and um you know when i was told that i couldn't do something that only meant that i was going to double down on it and try that much harder so i guess um you know given the environment on long island around the cross where it's maybe the the best hotbed in the country for that kind of talent versus long island's reputation in football where it's really uh, almost a, a, a wasteland in the eyes of a lot of big time programs um i saw that challenge and uh, unfortunately i decided hey let's take this harder path because that you know for some reason appealed to me well and we're going to get into that how you you know taking advice people telling you you can't do something don't do something don't take that hard path we're going to get to that in a second i knew you and i had something in common my father was also a teacher and a coach so um i grew up in that same household my mom was a teacher too and i love what you said offline before the ep uh, before we started this episode is you know what football is to texas lacrosse is to long island and you know as you got older you, you became pro, uh, definitely a two-sport star in both football and lacrosse. And I think you had opportunities in both sports. What drew you to taking the path towards football when you grew up in such a hotbed for lacrosse? 
Um, you know, it's it multiple factors. I think really one of them for me was just kind of the cultural factors. Um, anybody who's very well connected in the lacrosse community will tell you that it's it's an interesting dynamic because there's some undertones of almost the surfer world and more of a laid back type of vibe. Um, and, you know, I, I like to have a good time and relax, but certainly that's not a, a mentality that I harbor when I'm out on the sports field. So I always was a bit of an outlier amongst my peers in the sense that I was that very intense guy listening to pump up music before lacrosse games. Everybody be like, Pat, chill, chill, chill. And football really, really fed into that side of me. I loved going to a different place when I was getting ready to play, you know, and just, you know, being ready to go out there and, and almost feel like you're going to war. It's the, you know, the closest interpretation of war you could probably get is going out there for a football game or one of these, you know, contests. So I always loved that element of it. And when I felt like football was feeding into my aggressive, intense, motivated side, um, more so than lacrosse was, I all of a sudden started feeling like, wow, maybe this is really my true sport. This may be what I should truly be pursuing. I like that. And, and inquiring minds want to know. It's the championship game for the conference in high school. Right before the football game, what music are you turning on? Uh, there's a song by Young Jeezy called Put On. I put on for my city. And uh, that one always really spoke to me because I grew up in a, a little town on Long Island that most people have never heard of. So every time, you know, whether it was in high school and I'm trying to put my school on the map or later on in college and I'm trying to put New York on the map, I always thought, you know, I'm really representing for my people back home. You know, it's funny. It tells me how old I feel now compared to, compared to the younger generation because back in my day, it was jock jams. It was ACDC. It was <laughs> oh, I mean, Journey, The Final Countdown, you know, all those, all those 80s and 90s songs that we used to get ourselves pumped up. Oh, um, but but so let's talk about this, because I think your high school journey in football actually mirrored my baseball journey in high school a little bit, because going into my senior year, I only had one scholarship offer and it was to Division two school, Winona State uh, University up in Minnesota. Um I think your football journey was very similar, you know, going into your junior and senior seasons. Tell us a little bit about like, where were the offers coming in? Uh, where were the opportunities that you saw potentially to play football at the next level? Absolutely. So, you know, for me, one thing that was tougher is I was a bit of a late bloomer and football that really isn't conducive to the recruiting process. They're really a lot of the big schools are looking for guys who, you know, sophomore, but at the latest junior years are, are closer to finished products. And you can tell this guy is going to be a, a talented top top level football guy. Um, for me, as an Irish kid, I came into high school at about five foot six, 135 pounds. Um, and by the time I finished up, I was about six, two and a half, six, three, 250. Um, so I went through quite the transformation in, in high school. So my junior year, I was only about a 200 pound offensive and defensive alignment um so i had a little i got some looks i was a talented player so going after my junior year i started getting recruited by the ivy leagues and some uh some fcs schools going into my senior year still didn't have any offers but went out there and put out a really good senior year and wound up getting a couple offers from uh bryant and, and lafayette and a couple of uh you know smaller uh division one double a schools um, and, and nothing against those programs, but what I kind of found is my senior year, I went and I visited and I'd walk around and, you know, it was beautiful, but they'd have a 5,000 person stadium. And I'd say to myself, you know, I 
really, really want to try to associate and be part of the best of the best. And for me, as much as I love it here, I don't necessarily know if this meets the dream that I might have had when I was a little kid. Um, so I had a really difficult conversation with my parents, my coaches, uh, you know, my friends, and basically said, hey, guys, even though I've been given some incredible opportunities to go and play at the Division One level, um, I think I'm going to forgo them and, and try to walk on at a big time school. And that's, you know, I love that right there because literally going into the playoffs of my senior year. So we're talking May of, of senior year. I'm graduating in less than a month. I had one offer. It was division two. And I was like, you know what? I'm not satisfied. I want to play. I want to play division one. And I love your story because for, for the, you know, Bryant universities, the Lafayette, you know, I still love the fact you call it division one double a, I know we call it FCS, but I'm like, no, it's division one double a, um, you weren't satisfied with that. Now for me, I ended up getting a division one offer to a mid major division one school, dude, you went to the top and this is the story I want people to hear because when you said, uh, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to forego and I'm going to go for it. We're talking about today. One of the top dynasties we have seen in football. We're, we're not talking about, no, I'm going to go try to make it at, uh, at, uh, I don't know, pit or, or, you know, no offense to the, you know, the smaller <laughs> division one top big five schools, dude, you went to, you wanted to go to Clemson. Talk about that journey. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it, it was a really difficult time. You know, for, for a 17-year-old, I, you know, sometimes I like to put myself back in those shoes. And everything seemed so unstable in my life because really I had uh, come to regret the fact that I had made my recruitment process so public because I had uh, unwillingly put immense pressure from all outside forces on myself. And that's what I felt walking around as a senior. And um, really for a while it was, let's do the Ivy League. I had gotten some interest from the Ivy Leagues, got a gray shirt offer, which means I could come in after taking a prep school year to Dartmouth. Um, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. And everybody was waiting, waiting on my announcement. Um, and that's you know one of the downsides of being a, a talented athlete in a small town is everybody's in your business. Um, so when I made that decision and I'd gotten into Clemson academically, gotten a good academic scholarship and had a little bit of correspondence with the coaching staff, but it was far from a, a done deal that I was going to get to play there. Um, everybody looked at me and, and kind of laughed at me. And um, this really was a, a true motivating factor kind of for me going forward because I, I really, really um, was frustrated. I was like, why can't you people give me the chance? Why can't you guys believe that I could do something special? Um, and this was even coming from you know, my high school coaches. I had sit me, sit me down and say, hey, Pat, you're you know, giving up on an, an opportunity that a lot of people would dream for, for what most people consider a pipe dream. And uh, this really, really hurt me, but I only turned into working out that much harder, that much bigger of a chip on my shoulder. And I really said to everybody, I said, I promise I'm going to make the team. Now, I can't tell you if I'm going to be at Clemson for five years, try out during 10 different semesters and make it the final go round. I can't tell you if that's what it's going to take, but as long as it's going to take to make the team, that's how hard I'm going to work. And that's how many times I'm going to try. Um, so I went down there getting ready for a tryout with uh, a lot of uncertainty in my life as a, as an 18 year old. What advice, you know, before we get into that journey, um, what advice would you give? I feel like, you know, for that 16, 17, 18 year old 
high school athlete out there, whether you're a, a boy or girl, you have a lot of adults who are trying to control your decision, right? Let's face it. Parents helicopter their kids more than they ever have. Um, you have all these recruiters, all these counselors at school, your coaches, all telling you what you should be doing. And I actually love that you went against the grain and you're like, no, no, I get it, guys. Thanks. But I know where I'm headed. What advice would you give that kid, that athlete who is getting pulled in so many directions? Um, you know, everybody's going to have a different outlet for this. For me, it was going to church and praying. But I ask all those kids out there who are uncertain of their circumstances to try and practice mindfulness. Try to sit back and really think about what's going on in your life and decide, okay, is what I'm currently working towards what I want or what somebody else wants? Am I trying to placate somebody else or is this truly my passion and something that's going to make me happy and leave me fulfilled? Because as many parents out there as, as there are that want their kids to play Division One sports and be superstars, Ultimately, what you realize is when you get to college, there's a whole lot of work. And if you're not doing it for yourself, then it's never going to be worth it. Well, so and I, I, I love I love what you said there. Sorry, Patrick. Yeah, I love what you absolutely. said, because I think not only 18 year olds suffer from that. Hell, there's 35, 40, 45 year old people who are still in a job, in a career, whatever, because of something somebody said or because that was the job some they thought they had to have because of somebody's other somebody somebody else's influence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So and I, I love I, what I really, it has to be your it, you have to take ownership of your dream. Yeah. If you're fulfilling somebody else's dream, then guess what? You're gonna fail at their dream. Bomb right there. Take ownership of your dream. I absolutely love that. So okay. So you get to set, you get to, you get down to Clemson, South Carolina. This is 2016, right? 2015? 2015. They're already, Dabble Sweeney's already got them on the winning path. You know, for a while there, what, what was the phrase they always used on, on ESPN for years? Clemsoning? When, when Clemson would have a great year and then they lose the one big game they've got to win. And now the season kind of gets derailed. Well, Dabo shows up and the rest is history. We don't need to have a big conversation about that. So you get down there, like, and you're not on scholarship. You have to try out. Tell us what that was like. Um, you know, it, it was a really, really terrifying position in my life because I, uh, I had gone down to Clemson. My parents dropped me off at, um, you know, move-in weekend, and I'm staying on the side of campus as all the other students. So the athletes are kind of blocked out. They have their own little section of campus. I'm staying in the honors dorm, so there's certainly not a lot of not a lot of football lookalikes walking around that that side of campus. So everywhere I would go for my first four or five days on campus, everybody's asking, "Are you a football?" player are you a football player you know I'm the only 250 pound freshman walking around and I had this awful explanation of well maybe hopefully keep my fingers crossed we'll see um, so my fifth day on campus was the big day and uh, I show up really really nervous I can't tell you the kind of anxiety that an 18 year old is going through in class knowing that at four o'clock today I'm going to get to play in front of the Clemson coaches. Um, so I show up, 100-man tryout, um, and I look around. I'm like, I think I stack up pretty well against these guys. I think not all these guys had Division One offers. Um, and luckily, uh, you know, it was, a, it was an hour-long tryout. I actually, during the tryout, played offensive line and defensive line. I was the only guy trying out for each. So I had two, a two-on-one, two coaches on one guy for both sessions, 
and I remember it's about 100 degrees and I'm just cooking going over and over again. My hand keeps sliding off the pad as I'm punching it. And I have my coach tell me, if you can't hit a stationary target, how are you ever going to hit a moving one? And I think to myself, oh, my gosh, I might get cut. So practice goes on. I hear Dabo whisper to uh, one of the other coaches, can you believe this bogus from New York? And I said, all right, that, that can't be a bad thing. So afterwards, I walked away from the field, went over straight to church downtown Clemson, and I sat and I prayed for about 20 minutes. And I said, you know what, God, I've done all I can right now. So I'm leaving it in your hands, and I got to have peace with whatever that conclusion is. And um, went home about an hour later, got the phone call that I was one of four guys to make the Clemson football team and that I was going to show up for my physical the next day. So that, that'll be a day, a moment that I'll never forget. My, my what did, family. What did, what did you do right there? I was going to say when, I, I, let, let's go right to that moment. Cause I remember the day I got the call both for my offer at UWM and then a call from the Brewers to sign as a free agent. And those are moments you'll never forget. That moment when you got that call, where were you? Who called you? Like, take us through that moment. Um, I, I was sitting in my dorm and they had told me it was a Friday night and they had told me that I'd hear back on Sunday or Monday. So I was just kind of prepping myself for the, that uncertainty. I don't know how I was going to make it through 48 hours. Um, but I went and I, I checked my email and I, I pull up an email about an hour and a half after I left. And all of a sudden, I'm reading through it, and there was a cryptic email at the beginning that said, uh, thank you for your time. We truly appreciate your efforts at coming out. And with that said, we'd like to let you know that you'll be added to the 115-man uh, roster tomorrow. And uh, <laughs> and I got a call from the director of football ops congratulating me. I called my parents, screaming, screaming, joy. I started crying. I had my buddies on campus that time freaking out. Um, it was uh, a jubilous occasion. <laughs> I was a very, very happy camper. But about 30 minutes after that happened, I realized, all right, I guess you got to go down there and start blocking and start hitting against some of the best players in the country. So it was certainly a double-edged sword. Yeah, it was. it's like, uh-oh, now it's time to get to work, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but break this down for the listeners because you walked in with 100 people fighting for four spots. And you were one of the four. This kid from Long Island who comes from a, a, a lacrosse hotbed. And here you are trying out for, at that point, one of the top two teams in the country, three. You could say arguably Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State, right? If you had to break down how you did it in a matter of a step or two, what allowed you to stand out from 100 guys and, and be one of the four selected? Well, I, I think this lesson kind of has applications a lot further than football. I worked really, really hard, but don't work hard in the dark because there's a lot of people out there who like to go and claim, all right, I'm putting in the longest nights. I'm putting in the longest days. I don't want any attention. I'm just going to go about my business. And there is something to be said for that. But also when you're working harder than everybody else, take credit for that work. So one thing I did leading up to everything is I was killing myself in the weight room and trying to be the most talented, strong guy I could be when I, when I arrived on campus. So what I did was I sent videos of me lifting weights to the coaching staff. So they knew before I showed up, we got this guy who has elite strength for this age and, you know, for, for the country. Um, we have a guy who has some good athleticism. I sent a video of me dunking the ball. I think there's a lot of people out there, you know, 
when it comes to the job market, athletics, whatever it may be, who are hesitant to put forth their strengths and, and be confident in what they have to bring to the table. And uh, I made it a point to let them know, okay, I'm, I'm different than the rest of these people showing up because not only am I working this hard, but I've got some degree of natural ability that I want to convey to you before I even show up on campus. So what, what was it like? I'm curious, because now you're here, you know, I, I think the lessons from this journey are, are so important because, you know, it would be so easy. It would have been so easy for you at any moment during that trial to just quit, right? Because uh, what are the odds? A hundred guys, what are the odds I get selected out of four? And what you just said is so important is and it's no one can see you put in the work if you don't let anybody know you're putting in the work. And I, I'll admit, I talk often about the, it's all the work off the field when no one's watching, right? And that's where the habits are developed. But like you said, no one's going to see you unless you let them know that you want to be seen. And I, that's going to get into your chapter two, I think, very, very much. It's going to play very well. So let's go here. You're now, you've here, you're, you're now playing. What was it like, honestly? Because if you are a college football fan at all and you do the math, you were there from 2015 to 2018, arguably one of the most successful runs in college football history for a program. And it still continues for Clemson. Um, you played alongside some legendary defensive lines. Um, how many national title games? Three national title games, two wins. Two, two wins. What was that like when literally you are now, you've gone from Long Island under uh, underdog to the expectation that you win a national title. What's that like? You know, it, it was amazing to watch that transformation on campus because really when, when I showed up at Clemson, there's a completely different set of expectations amongst the student body and the fan base to what it grew into during my time there. So when I arrived to the number 12 team in the country, we had had a lot of success in the previous five or six years, but it wasn't national championship or bust by any means at that point. Um, my freshman year, about midway through the season, we rose to the number one team in the country. Um, and it was amazing watching the buzz around campus, around the you know, surrounding areas. It literally dominated the you know, conversation lines for, for the, entire, the entire season. Um, so year one, everybody's just through the moon that we even made the national championship game, come home after a loss uh, you know, to Alabama out in Arizona in 2015, and there's probably about 25,000 people in the parking lot waiting to congratulate us and thank us for the run that we had made. Um, but then it very quickly became, hey, if we can play up here, then we're going to be competing for national championships and anything less than that is no longer acceptable. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a lot of pressure. It's, it's a lot of pressure because it's really not easy. People don't realize, you know, for instance, a guy like uh, Bo Shem Beckler at Michigan never won a national championship thought of as one of the greatest college football coaches of all time. It's, it's that hard that there's legends who never do it. And when you're being asked every single year, either we're going to win it or it's going to be a bust. It's a lot. But what I really saw was the ownership of the culture by the players really made sure that that standard was held across the, across the board because uh, 
the difference between your fantastic programs, the Clemsons, the Alabamas, the Ohio States that are cons- you know consistently in that rare air versus the teams that might pop up for a year and then come back down to earth is the culture that is ingratiated in the building. And our guys knew we're going to be. We're going to outwork everybody. We're going to have as much talent as anybody. So let's go do this. Anything less than that is it acceptable. Well, and it's, it reminds me, it's funny because um, I think a lot of sports fans have come to dislike the Alabamas, the Clemsons, the Ohio States, because they're always good, right? It's easy to dislike yeah. the team that's always winning. But I'm a Wisconsin fan, so I'm a Big Ten guy. And I, I've said it for, for the last three or four years. Ohio State isn't giving up control of first place anytime soon. And I would say the same thing about Clemson. They're not giving up control of, of a, the ACC anytime soon. And we can complain and whine about the rich getting richer, as you hear people say about college football, but they're just recruiting at a higher level. These other teams need to step up if they want to compete with these teams. It's not that's unfair. They get all the good players, right? And I, it reminds me of actually the, the, the school I grew up, the town I grew up, next to Arrowhead High School. They had a string, um, Patrick, where they went to. I'm making numbers up, but it's close. 15 state, you know, 11 or 12 state title games in like 15 years. Wow. And I I remember the high school coach saying, because people, that's when you could start open and rolling and you could pick a a high school to go to and and all that. And people were getting mad. All these kids are transferring to Arrowhead. It's like, he's like, listen, go look at the trophy case. That's why they want to come here. I don't have to do any recruiting. They want to come to win. And so for you, you know, going to a program like that, where it went from, we now have the expectation of winning a national title every year. You're right. That comes with a lot of pressure, but it's got to come with a lot of pride too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a certain swagger when you get off the bus that Clemson has that other teams don't have. And I mean, you buy in as, as a player. And, and I think, a confident football team that's still focused on their goals ahead is a very, very dangerous thing. We're, we're always confident. We're never cocky. And that's something that I try and bring into every element of my life. You know, I, if I believe that I'm there and good enough to get the job done, well, I'm going to let you know it. Well, <laughs> and that's couple, certainly what we had. A couple more questions about your time there. Um, and then we're going to get into your journey, you know, with about you, which I absolutely love. One, you got to run out of not one tunnel, but three tunnels at the national title game. What was that like, that first one, when you're in the tunnel, you're in Arizona, you're in the last game of the year, the most important game of the year. What's that feeling like sitting and standing in that tunnel? You know, it, it was such a whirlwind because it felt like in about uh, you know 10 or 11 month span that my life had really come full circle because almost a year prior, I was sitting there, at, at, you know, second half of my senior year as a very, very uncertain uh, unconfident guy who whose life was just a complete fluctuations. And, um, you know, to go from there to that morning, I'll, I'll always remember that morning of the national championship game, meeting out the hotel parking lot with my parents and just looking at them being like, can you guys believe <laughs> this? We're here. This is Arizona and we're here. Um, so I remember running out of the, the stadium or out of the tunnel for that first national title and really just looking around and trying to soak it in and saying, thank you, God, because I had no idea that this is what you had in store. And all those schools that I thought, you know, the Harvards of the world that I thought were really dumb not to take me. Now I know why they said no. You know, that's awesome. Um, it, really special. Well, and I think as a team for you, that first one, there were probably a lot of starstruck 
athletes on the team, right? Like, wow, we're here. We finally made it. By that third one, you guys were probably like, yeah, this is our home. Like, we expect to be here. Exactly. And, And I mean, I think that's a really big differentiator when you look at, you know, why is it that the Alabamas and the Clemsons of the world are able to retain that place on top? I think as much as anything is they know they belong there. And that first season um, for us, uh, you know, my, my first year, 2015, we lost uh, 45 to 40 in the national title game. It was a heartbreaker, onside kick in the fourth quarter. It was, a, it was a great game. But the most important thing about that game was it left us with the belief that we could win. Because going into it, we knew we were good, but there was all that, always that little lingering doubt of this is Alabama we're talking about and this is the national title game do we really belong here but then the next year when we came back we knew we could play with those guys any of those doubts have been washed away and i think that's why you see these same few teams continually dominating it's because their cultures tell them that they they belong there whereas it it takes a little bit of time uh, you know to get over that hump yeah no that's that's phenomenal and that first national titles with deshaun watson right is that the one yeah, yeah. Okay. First national titles with Deshaun, and then my, my final national titles with Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence, yep. So when I look at Mount Rushmore of college football coaching, I feel like Nick Saban's face is already entrenched <laughs> as one of the four. But Absolutely. I feel like Dabo Sweeney's face is now starting to get etched into that stone. What was it like to play for him? It, it was demanding, um, but very rewarding because – you know, one thing that I really respect about Dabo and that I'll always take as I try to become a leader and transition into my business career um, is he, he asked a lot of his guys, of his coaching staff, his players. He held everybody accountable equally across the board. And um, you knew that if you were slacking, that he'd get after you. But with that being said, nobody in the building ever questioned if Dabo cared, um, if he cared about the team, but more importantly, if he cared about you as an individual. Um, and, and I think the issue that coaches have sometimes is if they're not properly getting across that I want to do this to help you, then they can, you know, be you know, met with deaf ears. Dabo always made sure to let us know, hey, I care about the man that you are, the student that you are, the father you're going to become someday a lot more than I care about your performance at X practice. And, and that, that's important. And, and as a result, everybody always bought in for Dabo because if this guy's cussing at me and going crazy, at least I know that at the end of the day, he cares about me and he wants to see what's best for me. And that's what he's trying to drive home. But he was a lot more demanding than, than he you know, would indicate to the public eye. He's not always just a good old boy who's you know, looking to you know, crack some jokes and have fun and dance. Um, he's, he's like any other football coach. He'll really get after you out there. But the difference is, you know that when you come see him after, after practice at dinner or whatnot, he's going to be joking around with you and he's going to really care. Yeah, no, I love that because I think that's what makes coaches. I think in our, let's call it our cancel culture today, everybody wants to spotlight that one moment when that coach is in that player's face. And that's the moment they highlight as the snapshot moment and that this, why this coach needs to be let go and this coach needs to be fired. And it's like, you don't realize at the end of the day, the work those coaches put in and how much they care about those young athletes, especially college athletes, because you know, you're 18 to 21 years old, you're still very influenced by, a, by your coaching staff. And so, you know, I look at guys like Nick Saban and, and, and Dabo Sweeney. Yeah. Are they demanding? Hell yes. 
but there's not a soul on that field who cares more about those players than that those two guys right there. Exactly. And, and they, they guard their cultures to the death yeah. is, is really one thing I've seen because that's one of the most difficult elements of a college football environment is you're really pulling people from all walks of life. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great, you know, uh, pre- uh, you know, preparation tool for life because I really got to interact with a, a, a wide array of different personalities, socioeconomic backgrounds, yeah, races, yeah. et um, But it can be very difficult to make that all gel when you're getting it working and you've got your, you know, rich white kid from X area, hang out with your guy who, you know, grew up in the, you know, the ghettos of Atlanta and they're all functioning together. That's something that you need to be very protective of. And that's a very delicate balance for all these coaches. And it, you know, I watched my first season, a couple of guys, if we had buy-in from 110 guys, there was five guys who were lagging behind. And that held that team back from winning the national championship. So once you get into that rare air, it's really the most small little details that can make all the difference. And a lot of that is locker room management. And that's really what Dabo and Saban have been so excellent at is because they're able to bring in talent from all across the country, but then they're allowed to get, they're able to get them to buy in and be a family. And that's the real differentiator. Let's go, let's go there because I want to talk about what you're doing with about you. The socio, you talked about the socioeconomics of, you know, bringing our culture together of an, a locker room culture where there are so many athletes coming from so many different geographies, so many different socioeconomic situations. And really with about you, you know, I know you're a, a financial analyst at Wells Fargo, but the work you're putting in with the about you outreach, I think is really fascinating to help. Let's call it the underserved athletes around the country. Talk a little bit about what you guys are doing at about you today. Sure, absolutely. So uh, about you, kind of my background of, of how I got involved was I had a mentor down in Clemson who uh, has ties to the New York City area and informed me last year during the pandemic about a really good friend that he has who was running a charity that does you know academic preparation, but also some football training for kids. So I started showing up once a week up to the Bronx during the middle of the pandemic um, to give practice to inner city kids, anybody who wanted to show up and refine their skills and stay in shape for their upcoming season. Um, so I, I went one time and immediately completely bought in because what I noticed was, wow, I'm in the Bronx right now, but I'm working with kids this 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning who've come an hour from Brooklyn, you know, have come 45 minutes from Harlem, from all around the city who just want to get better and just want somebody to care about them. So I started coaching and about two months into this whole uh, experience, the mayor of New York City cancels the upcoming football season. And for kids, you know, from urban areas, like, like the kids I'm coaching in New York, football is seen as a way out. It's an opportunity to better yourself and, and better your circumstances. And when they lost football, they felt like they had lost their chance. So my charity, I, I came together with the, uh, with the founder of the charity and I said, we need to do something for them. And we founded something we called the Elite Five Football Showcase. Um, so the Elite Five for the five boroughs of New York ran it, the initial uh, Elite Five back in October. And basically what we do is we deliver really, really low cost recruiting opportunity to diverse and low income kids primarily. 
Um, and I used my network of about 100 schools across the country to get a good buy-in um, from all levels. Clemson recruits the event, Notre Dame recruits the event, Ohio State recruits the event. Um, and it was a fantastic first run. So what we quickly realized was, wow, even though we might have set this up to bridge the opportunity gap during the pandemic, the opportunity gap in uh, whether it be recruiting or academics or, or understanding careers um, is a lot more widespread than just New York City and a lot more far reaching than just during a pandemic. Um, so this year we're expanding that out into three events. Um, it's going to be a, an Elite Five Long Island, an Elite Five New York City, and an Elite Five Boston, with a total of a thousand kids going through. We're going to have mandatory career workshops for all the kids because ultimately what we want to do is drive buy-in that, hey, you're not just going to college to play football and check a box. You're going to build skill set that you're going to use for the rest of your career that's going to give you a, a wonderful career that's going to change your family's you know destiny um so it's it's been very very rewarding a, a lot of work in that field but i have felt like from the incredible experiences that clemson football afforded me that i don't always necessarily know if i deserve i was obliged to pay it forward well and well, i, I something, something you said that i want you to talk about when we, you and I were connecting offline, it was growing up in Wisconsin as a baseball player, I used to complain that I didn't have the same exposure as a, as a baseball player from Florida, Texas, California. You know, the, all the big schools were recruiting in the South, right? And I complained about my lack of exposure, and that's why I, didn't, I wasn't getting the same opportunities. But hearing what you said about these kids coming from inner cities, like, I ain't got nothing to complain about, man. Talk about how hard it is, because you talked about this is their way out. Talk about what you see right now in collegiate athletics, how so many of these good athletes from these inner cities, boroughs in New York, get overlooked is it because the, the colleges just aren't taking the time to go there? Explain the difficulties these kids have to get seen. Um, I mean, it, it's a unique set of challenges. You know, for, for starters, the areas that these kids are coming from aren't always the safest. And it's really, really difficult to live in an environment where there's going to be a murder on your street almost every day. And you're going to still have to walk to school, carry your books, try and stay focused and stay on that straight and narrow. So we've got an uphill battle with some of these guys from the start. Um, beyond that, in New York especially, but this is a, a widespread problem, you have a failing uh, public school system in the city. Um, when I look out and I do a lot of background research in order to fine tune the Elite Five to you know, take care of the communities that are truly most in need. One thing that was really, really shocking to me in going through New York City public schools is probably about 80% of New York City public school students are on government free lunch. Um, and that you know raised a few different questions. Number one, I know that an area like New York City might have some poverty, but it certainly has incredibly wealthy segments as well. Well, those are universally in private school. Um, so basically, they've left the you know black and brown kids from poor neighborhoods to kind of rot, and 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 that's really really sad because a big issue when it comes to recruiting down the line is these kids aren't even NCAA qualifiers when the opportunity arises. So even if you are good enough, 
you're not going to be able to qualify to play an NCAA sport. And even the guys who are good enough to qualify oftentimes have to show up at college and take remedial courses for the first year and a half, two years. So they're on a six year track to start. Um, so that's, you know, some of the disadvantages that we're working with beyond that, you know, from just a pure sports perspective, it's not easy for college coaches to get up to New York City or get up to, you know, one of these major metropolitan areas um, and recruit. It's, it's not easy to navigate. They'd much rather, you know, hop on I-95 and go through Georgia, go through Florida, go through South Carolina and stop at five high schools where the talent's going to be a lot denser. So what we're kind of hoping to do with the Elite Five is, number one, you know, our whole charity, a little background to the charity, we do uh, mentorships or professional development and mentorship for high high school kids, SAT prep for middle school and high school inner city kids. We do um, sports specific training. Um, we do physical uh, fitness preparation and then we do the elite five. So basically it's a holistic uh, you know, charity looking to drive uh, academic improvement through uh, athletic uh, buy-in. So really, you know, with the elite five, we're excited because we think that it can address a few of these different issues. Number one, we're, we're, we're driving buy-in for these kids on the academic side because we're very transparent with guys. There's a lot of kids in New York City who think that they can sleep through class and, you know, still go play Division One football. And unfortunately, that's just not reality. And their, their role models have failed them. And we're coming in, we're trying to fix that issue. Um, beyond that, we're really looking to ease the friction for anybody who wants to come up and recruit in the inner city. Um, for a lot of you know, college coaches, they don't want to come here to recruit because they might have to go visit a kid in the Bronx and then it could take them half a day to get across to Brooklyn to see a second kid and it's just too difficult. We make everything virtual so you can sit on your couch and watch the entire showcase through all three events will be uh, you know, live streamed and broadcasted afterwards for all the coaches. And we aggregate the top talent. We get them all in the same field at one time. So, hey, you might you might not love the density of talent in New York City, but on sheer numbers, I can guarantee you that there's a lot of top guys that coaches are, are already and will be excited about. So our kind of motto is a rising tide floats all boats. We're trying to make this process as easy and streamlined as possible for collegiate coaches. And we know that as soon as the collegiate coach from Clemson starts looking at that number one guy from New York who in years past might have gone to UMass, that number two guy will follow suit and so on and so forth, where a kid who probably might not have gone to college getting a Division three opportunity. And we care just as much about that guy as the guy who we'll see on ESPN in a few years. I love that, man, because um, when we think about – we all know growing up, if you're an athlete, you all know that one guy you talk about where you're like, man, you remember, you remember so-and-so that guy had more talent than anybody I've ever seen, but nobody saw him. We all know that under that underappreciated athlete or the athlete known recruited and you had no, no, no idea why it's because no one saw him right now. Here's where I want you to wrap this story up. You told me offline about, for you know, to give a give a real life example of where about you is really helping these athletes, especially from the five boroughs in New York City. Talk about the the camp you're going to be taking a couple guys down to uh, in Clemson and what that could literally mean for their life. Because what I love what you're doing, Patrick, more than anything, sports has often been the way out for these guys and and these women, right? But you're also teaching them life lessons to get a way out, even if it's not athletics. 
Absolutely. But talk about the the trip you're about to take uh, some of the football athletes down uh, on down to Clemson for a camp that could literally change their life. Yeah, my, my charity is very excited. I'm, I'm really, really excited to be a part of it. So uh, next week on June 5th, so this up, upcoming Saturday, um, we're taking uh, seven kids down to down to Clemson, all from uh, inner city New York, all Harlem Jet alums. And the Harlem Jets are our partner organization. It's the largest youth football organization in New York State. Um, bringing them all down. So we've got two, two sophomores, two class of 2023 guys, one freshman, and four eighth graders coming down on the trip. Um, and one of the reasons we're so excited is we view this as an opportunity to make a statement to the rest of the country that, you know, you might not have historically thought of New York as a, as a hotbed for top end football talent, but we're showing you right in front of your face that New York has, you know, as good of athletes as anywhere in the entire country. And that old rumor, that old, uh, you know, belief about New York guys that they're too dumb or, you know, too you know, hood rat or wh whatever the different misnomers, you know, that were floating around out there were. Um, all these guys are bringing down have great SAT scores, great grades. Their, you know, characteristics are really everything that you'd be looking for in a good man. Um, so we're really, really excited. We've got two guys, the two sophomores, who uh, are prime candidates to get a scholarship offer. They they both have scholarship offers from various other large Division One programs, but Clemson means a little bit more because um, they're the big dog in college football. It's either them or Alabama um, in terms of probably the biggest offer out there. And one thing that we're excited about is we know that when we go down there and these guys play the way that they're capable of and leave with scholarships from Clemson, around the country all of a sudden there's going to be years perking up saying a couple of guys from Harlem all of a sudden are going down to South Carolina to play football. Let's see what they have building in, in New York City. And I'm confident when they come and check it out, they're going to be very excited and we're going to you know, lead to a lot more opportunities for, for kids that normally would have been left behind. I love that, man. If somebody is listening and they want to get involved, what are, what are the easiest ways uh, we can get involved with the outreach program, outreach or about you outreach program? Absolutely. Well, anybody who's interested could either, you know, uh, reach out to me at my email address, which is uh, patrick.godfrey at aboutyououtreach.org, or just go to aboutyououtreach.org and check out our site. We've got a donate tab, so any, anything helps, but really just uh, any awareness you can help bring to our organization is, is really greatly appreciated because we're, uh, it's kind of exciting. We're in almost a, a post-startup phase where we're just getting a lot of programming developed and, and off the ground, but we're really set in a point right now where we're ready to launch, take this thing nationwide and uh, transform into one of the those mega charities you see out there. I, I think that we could be a, a, you know, a YMCA someday, so we'll see, but all I know is the more work we put in, the more time we put in, maybe that leads to one more kid changing his life, changing his family's lives. And that's always justified in my eyes. That's awesome, man. Well, let's wrap up. I got one last question. Then we're going to go into uh, around the horn here with four questions. Uh, awesome. you, you, you don't get to think about it. You just got to give me the best answer. Great. Uh, but last question. I'm actually one uh, when I'm talking to young athletes who believes that go to a school where you're going to get a chance to play. You know, that might mean going D2 or 1AA versus Division One. I. I know a lot of guys that that went D1 for the, the bright lights never saw the field. And I was always one who said, go where you're going to play. Now, you had a chance, right? You could have gone to Bryant or Lafayette and played right away. 
But you went to Clemson where, you know, you didn't see a ton of playing time outside of special teams, but out of it came one hell of an experience, three national title games, two national title wins. I respect the shit out of that because my belief system actually is a little different. But what would you tell that athlete right now, that that high school basketball, lacrosse, football, uh, baseball player who's like, you know, I'm getting offers here, but man, I really want to go here. What would you tell that kid? I, I tell them to really follow their heart because you know what, like as much as it was a challenge for me to, to not play as much as I wanted to, it was also a really great life lesson that I was kind of learning in the process. Cause what I kind of realized when I showed up is Pat, you've got tremendous odds to overcome to even step foot on the field like that, that right there will be a huge accomplishment and it's not easy. So you really have to be able to check your ego at the door number one, and really be able to buy into something that's greater than yourself. And I, I really had to come to grips with the fact that even if I was going to get zero snaps on Sunday or Saturday, I prepared the team that entire week. I was out there fighting. I was going to war. And, you know, the fruits of my labor are being experienced out there on Saturday, whether or not I get to partake. Um, so it's, it's really great, you know, and a great analogy for any time you might be working in a large organization where you might just feel like a cog in a machine versus a real power player, um, which I know a lot of people feel like when they first enter the working world. So I was ready for that because of that. Um, so what I just say is, you know, everybody has their own different views of what success looks like. And for me, I was very happy being a contributor, maybe 1% of an overall machine that was an amazing product and, you know, going and doing special things as a result. But I certainly had times, Andy, I'm not going to ever lie and say that, you know, I'd be sitting there after a game we'd finish up playing Wake Forest and the defensive line at Clemson would come over to me and be like, hey, Pat, you're way better than that guy. You know, you, you, that was easy after going against you all week. And I think to myself, you know, even though I'm, you know, you know, honored to hear that, that guy got to start in Death Valley today. I didn't get to start in Death Valley. So that was always a challenge. But really, everybody has their own uh, individual, you know, idea of what success is and go chase that no matter what it looks like. And it might be all conference at a Division three level and it might be bench warm at a Division one level, but be prepared to handle the ramifications of either. Well, raise, hold up your ring finger if you don't mind. That speaks for itself right there. You've, you've got two of those, right? So yeah. let's wrap up with around the horn questions. All right. So the first one. Four questions. Don't give it much thought. First, first answer that comes to your head. Um, the first one's actually a three-part question. Growing up on Long Island, Jets, Giants. Giants. Mets, Yankees. Mets. Islanders, Rangers. Isles. Nice. You're one of the few I've, I've interviewed from New York that said Islanders over the, over the Rangers, so I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I have to be loyal. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, playing a lot of special teams at Clemson over your career. Who is the fastest athlete you ever played against? There's a guy um, named Janarius Robinson from Florida State who uh, I believe he got drafted this year. I can't remember off the top of my head where he got drafted. He was like a third rounder. But he, uh, I was playing kick return, and I, I'm the wedge captain in front of Travis Etienne. So I go, I run in front of him, watch him catch the ball, and then I turn and I lead him up through the middle. 
um, which is challenging considering I'm an offensive lineman and maybe a step or two slower than a lot of the other guys playing open field football. So um, we're playing against Florida State, and there's this guy cooking it down my way. And I'm like, you know, hey, I'm a big guy out here. Nobody's as big as me on kickoff. So I'm going to lower my shoulder. I'm going to run this guy over. So I lower my shoulder, and he collides into me, and we both fell back on our asses. And I'm like, holy crap. And I go, and I, I was like, who was that guy? Like, you know, a little dizzy running off the field. I went, I looked him up afterwards. He was a six foot four, 265 pound defensive end who was running a four six. So, it, it, you know, I'm, a, I'm not a physics wizard, but force equals mass times acceleration. Him with about a 60 yard head start. Um, it's no, no wonder why I wound up on my butt, but for some reason, <laughs> I'll always remember that hit. <laughs> That's the definition of a freight train. Uh, number three, even though you don't want this to happen, if there is a team that could knock Ace, uh, Clemson off the ACC crown, make a prediction. Who is it going to be? <sighs> It's tough to see. I mean, short term, I'd say North Carolina because I really like what Mac Brown has building uh, in, in Chapel Hill. Um, but he's old, he's older and they're not as much of a blue blood. So it's hard to see them having sustained success atop the division. Um, long term, I think, you know, it'd have to be Florida State is the only program that could really, you know, build up something big enough to compete with us year in, year out. But they're an absolute train wreck. So yeah, you guys might, have quite the gap right now. Yeah, you guys have quite the gap. Last question. Um Make put on your crystal ball again now that you're doing your work with about you. If you had to make a prediction, name one kid right now who really nobody knows about that we could definitely be seeing starring on Saturdays, hell, maybe even Sundays that you get the chance to work with. All right. Uh, a kid named Musa Kane. I'm really, really excited about him. He's a sophomore in high school, class of 2023. Um, he's six foot two, 187 pounds. He's got arms that dangle probably down to about the ground. And a very interesting fact about him is he has a 48 inch one footed box jump. And we didn't know that they kept records for that sort of thing, but we looked it up after he did it, and he is five inches off of the world record for a one-foot box jump. So as twitchy, as explosive a guy as you'll ever meet, and Clemson's currently talking to him. He's coming down to Clemson with us this weekend. So I've got some faith that in about three or four years, you're going to be seeing him run around wearing you know some orange, white, and purple. And uh, you'll remember this this podcast. That is, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's God-given stuff that you can't teach right there. Absolutely. So, well, Patrick, thank you for joining the bullpen session today. This was awesome. I think uh, for anybody listening in, if you are listening in, whether whether you have a, a young athlete right now, please share this podcast with him or her. Uh, there's a lot of kids out there today that, that want to play at the next level and I think assist – the expectation you will, but as you and I both know, Patrick, that isn't the expectation, but you defied a lot of uh, odds getting the opportunity to go from Long Island football to Clemson football, playing in three national title games and winning two of them to now the work that you're doing to help other kids who don't get that same, um, the same, uh, what I want to call it, exposure that a lot of the kids from the South maybe get or kids from those areas where they get heavily recruited. So uh, this was an awesome episode, man. I really, really appreciate this. And if you're listening in right now, please take this to heart. Listen to Patrick's advice. I, I think of everything I heard you say, Patrick, was take ownership of your dream. One, have a freaking dream. Own it. Don't give a shit what other people say and go get it. 
Amen. Amen. And, and when you were able to do that, you know, as I like to finish every episode here, that's when clarity and confidence collide. And when clarity and confidence collide, massive action happens. So for those listening in, go make it happen today. Shift your mindset. Thank you for listening into this week's episode. And if you know of any other high achievers like yourself that you think would benefit from this episode, please do me a favor. Please share this with them. You would help me go a long way in sharing this message, getting this message out to as many people as possible. I'd be forever grateful. And if you really found benefit from today's episode, do me a favor, go subscribe to the podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a great review. It always helps to make sure that this podcast is getting in front of as many ears and eyeballs as possible. Thank you.